all of the transistors in your integrated circuits in your computer and your iPhone and so on are in one layer. But if you want to pack more devices into your integrated circuit, you need to make the footprint, the lateral size, smaller. And that's, of course, been the whole business model of the microelectronics industry for six decades. Just make the transistor smaller and smaller laterally, and then you can pack more and more in the same area. So now I can have an iPhone, which can outperform a computer from the 1980s, even though it's much smaller because we pack so many more transistors into that small area. Now that scheme works quite well. I mean, that's why microelectronics has continued to advance for six decades. But there is a limit. Once the size of the device gets down to atomic scale dimensions, you can't go any smaller. And we're approaching those length scales now. And as a result, further scaling laterally uh, has a finite window over which that will continue to work. On the other hand, if I'm doing printed electronics or flexible electronics, I now have the possibility of going out of plane into the third dimension. For example, if I'm printing the semiconductor layer, I could print a layer of semiconductors, I could have some devices on that layer, put down an insulating material, and then print another layer of semiconductors, and just keep building up out of plane. I mean, I like writing journal papers, but let's be honest, not many members of the general public are reading journal papers, but they're probably going to interact with new technologies that are uh, used in devices that impact their everyday lives. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about their research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So my name is Mark Hersom. I'm Professor of Material Science and Engineering and Director of the Materials Research Center at Northwestern University. I've been at Northwestern for 22 years. I started in the fall of 2000. My research group uh, works in the area of nanoelectronic materials, particularly on methods for tailoring the surface chemistry of these materials. Uh, applications that we work on range from conventional electronics to next generation electronics, such as neuromorphic computing and quantum computing, to energy technologies, including photovoltaics and batteries. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So maybe before going to these lines of research you're doing, in your description for lab, you use a combination of the hard and soft nanoscale material. And you try to understand and manipulate them to create this application. If you can tell us at the beginning what is the purpose of using this combination. Can we use soft or hard nanomaterial slowly 
for certain application. Let's take, for example, neuromorphic computing. Yeah, so one of the nanoelectronic materials uh, that people work on would be deemed to be hard materials. Um, but the reality is that the nanometer scale, the surface area to volume ratio is, is very high. For example, if we think about a material like graphene, which is a one atom thick sheet of carbon, every atom is on the surface. And therefore, any changes you make to the surface can influence the properties. Oftentimes, uh, the chemical modifications that we do are using uh, organic molecules or materials, which would generally be deemed to be soft materials. So the combination of the hard material substrate and the soft material functionalization allows you to achieve uh, properties that would be unprecedented for either in isolation. Mm -hmm. And do you think what other interesting features when you combine the poles of soft and hard? What other interesting feature do you think for electronics here that we speak about? Yeah, so, so for example, uh, oftentimes uh, in the world of soft electronics, what we want are materials that are mechanically flexible, perhaps stretchable. This makes them amenable to integration with wearable devices and technologies. So you want to have that soft character mechanically, but the world's best electronic materials tend to be based on hard materials. This would be materials like silicon, carbon materials like carbon nanotubes and graphene, other uh, layered semiconductors. And so you really want to have both. The performance of the hard material, but the mechanical properties of the soft material. And so in our lab, that's what we're often attempting to do is to get the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. If there's a trade-off so far or something for your work, you have been one pioneer in that, but do you think there's something still very challenging to bring the best of the two? Maybe something still in the performance or the design is a bit challenging. Can you highlight some of these aspects if you have? Sure. Yeah, so, so for one example, uh, if you're going to be working in the area of flexible electronics, oftentimes you want to be working in uh, a, a mode of manufacturing where you'd be printing the devices. If you think about other soft technologies like newspapers, uh, they're fabricated via printing, not via some expensive clean room fabrication processing. Okay, so we want to be able to take these high-performance, hard or inorganic materials and make them amenable to printing. So in that case, uh, what we may do is uh, take the materials, uh, disperse them in solution to make an ink, uh, print them onto a target substrate, and hope that the properties that we had in the beginning are preserved following printing. In reality though, a printing tends to happen at a larger length scale than the size of the materials. And so if you imagine making an electronic device, between the two contacts you make to the device, you're gonna have not just one of these nanomaterials, but a percolating network of them. And that becomes problematic because while the performance of one particular nanomaterial may be exceptional, when you have to traverse across several of them, the interfaces between them can limit the performance. 
So there we now have a trade-off where if I went and did expensive clean room processing to make my device at the single nanomaterial level, I could get superlative performance, but then I would not have manufacturability compatible with flexible electronics. On the other hand, if I create an ink and I print these materials, now I can manufacture them in a way which is amenable to flexible electronics, but I've given up some of the electronic properties. And so that's the, the challenge, is to overcome that trade-off. Mm -hmm. I, I really like this, but I think very interesting since you mentioned printing here, and I want to ask you, since you have also experience, I think, in, in uh, you have co-founder also the company, and I think you have two vision here from research perspective in the lab and scaling. And I think this point of printing electronic devices, flexible electronic devices, what's the solution? So it's, it's all of the above, and that, that's the challenge. So there's, there's, I often list four different requirements that need to be met concurrently. One is to isolate your nanomaterials in a scalable manner where the size and shape of each component is the same since properties depend upon size and shape. So having highly monodispersed size and shape nanomaterials produce at large enough quantities to feed industrial manufacturing is the first challenge. Then you need to take those highly minus first nanomaterials and create an ink, which is compatible with your printing method. Now an ink has to have suitable rheological properties like viscosity to enable it to print effectively. That's the second challenge. Let's assume you now have highly monodispersed nanomaterials in large quantities. You can make inks and you can print. Uh, the next issue is that when you actually print, you're going to have, as I said before, not just one nanomaterial, but a percolating network of them. And therefore, the morphology or the alignment of the individual nanomaterials matters. That could depend upon the way in which your ink dries or some subsequent curing or thermal processing that you perform. And then finally, even if you have perfectly monodispersed nanomaterials, they're well printed, they have the morphology that you want after drying and curing, you still have those interfaces between the nanomaterials, which have to be optimized for whatever your targeted property is. If it's an electronic device, you want the resistance, the contact resistance between the constituent nanomaterials to be very low. And so that may require you to introduce additives into your ink, which would leave residues that would actually facilitate charge transport through the percolating network. And so it's, it's not a single variable problem. It's a multivariable problem. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge. You have to do all of those things well in order to get optimal performance. Maybe I want to go for the design of neuromorphic devices here or soft electronic devices. Maybe before going back, can you tell us what is neuromorphic here, electronic devices, and how you go this scale, this small nanoscale to embed the design? Yeah, well, let's first begin with uh, what we mean by neuromorphic computing. So neuromorphic computing uh, is an attempt to emulate the way biology does computing. In other words, to emulate the brain. 
So neuromorphic and brain-like are synonymous terms. Why would we want to emulate the brain? Well, what the brain does much better than a conventional digital computer is perform computation in a highly energy efficient manner. I think everybody knows that today's supercomputers can beat chess grandmasters at a game of chess. And so the computational ability of a digital computer, you could argue, is comparable to that of the brain, at least in that particular context. But if you ask the question, how much power does it take to run that supercomputer compared to the chess grandmaster, you're going to be requiring tens of kilowatts of power to run that supercomputer, whereas that chess grandmaster just needs a few snacks in order to power his computational machine, namely the brain. So the energy consumption required for digital computing is orders of magnitude higher than computation performed by the brain. This is a key motivating factor because as the amount of data proliferates, energy consumption becomes a larger and larger problem to the point where if you have a server farm being used for searches of the internet, that may require its own power plant in order to, to drive it, uh, which is simply not sustainable if the amount of data continues to grow. So that's why we do it. Another reason is that if you look in the world of computer science, all of the rage is so-called artificial intelligence or machine learning. These algorithms are, of course, attempting to emulate real intelligence, but they're using a hardware platform, which is very different than what real intelligence uses. And as a result, there's another reason to explore neuromorphic computing to produce better hardware to drive AI and machine learning algorithms. Okay, so that's why, or that's what it is and why we work on it. Now the question is, how do you go about it? And uh, there are many ways to do it, but what we attempt to do in our lab is look at biological systems and try to emulate their behavior in solid state electronic devices. So one example is if you look at a neuron, neurons have a spiking behavior, so-called action potential. It's a voltage spike as a function of time. Conventional solid-state electronic devices do not have such highly nonlinear processes. That's something that we've attempted to emulate in our lab, uh, which we've been able to do by not using one particular nanomaterial, but combinations of them to create so-called heterojunctions, where the interplay between the two different uh, nanomaterials allows us to achieve highly nonlinear responses. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe I'll ask you uh, what other form of intelligence in the material, maybe in the design, how do you think about embedding, like embodying intelligence in the material level in that case? That's yeah. one of aspects of the computation. But when you try to think about what other form of embedding intelligence in the material, how you envision that? Right. Yeah, so I talked about the neuron and the highly nonlinear voltage spiking response. So that's one thing you want to have in a, in a neuromorphic device is a high degree of nonlinearity. Another thing that's 
differentiating brain-like computing from digital computing is how memory and information processing is handled. In a digital computer, you have a memory block, which is separate from the microprocessor. And as a result, you need to move data back and forth between the memory and the microprocessor in order to do, to do computation. In the old days when there wasn't that much data, that was not a big deal. You just shuttle it back and forth. It's fast enough and energy efficient enough that that architecture works. But as the amount of data proliferates and grows, that becomes a bottleneck. The movement of data back and forth between memory and processing and space takes time. It consumes energy. In the brain, this is done very differently. Memory and information processing is done at the same point in space, ultimately down to the single neuron level. And so if we want to emulate intelligence in a device, a solid-state electronic device, then you would aspire to have memory and information processing done at the same point in space, preferably done by the same device. And so that's something that our lab has been working on. The constituent device for information processing is the transistor, whereas for memory, we typically use a different type of device called a memristor. This is a resistor that remembers its voltage history, and therefore we can store information in that device. So if you could somehow integrate a memristor into a transistor, then you could have information processing and memory at the same point in space. And this is something that we've recently done in our lab. We call the device a mem transistor because it combines the memristor and the transistor in one device. It takes advantage of a couple of unique attributes of nanomaterials. One is that if you have the right nanomaterial, you can get relatively uh, low uh, energy movement of defects through the material. This is important because when the defects move through the material, you change their current voltage response in a manner which maintains the state after you've done the programming. That's the memristor-like response. And to be honest with you, there are many materials that have controlled defect motion, and therefore there are many possible choices for making a memristor. But the reason we do it with nanomaterials, in particular atomically thin two-dimensional materials, is that those materials also can be strongly modulated with an additional electric field. In other words, we can gate that device. And gating is the underlying principle under which a transistor works. So exploiting the atomically thin geometry of the device allows us to gate it, getting the transistor response whereas the control defect motion gives us the memristor response. So that's a case where we're utilizing those two properties of nanomaterials to realize a device uh, that emulates the behavior of neurons in the brain. Interesting. Maybe a quick question about the morphology here in this description. How significant the morphology when you try to design? Such example you mentioned now, yeah, so I mentioned the fact that we want to be able to gate the device, use an electric field to modulate the current flow. This is most easily achieved when the thickness of the device is less than the screening length of the electric field. 
In other words, the thinner your device is, the better. Now, if you think about having an atomically thin material, uh, of which we have many options in our lab, the thickness of the device is going to be minimized if that atomically thin material is lying flat. If it was crumpled up or in some three-dimensional geometry, even though the constituent material is thin, the thickness of the device would be increased in that case. So for this particular case, we want to have the material as flat as possible in order to minimize the overall thickness of the device, enabling the gating. Now in some other devices, you may have an advantage in having your flat material crumpled up into something that's much thicker. But for neuromorphic, at least for the device I just talked about, the MEM transistor, we want it to be as flat as possible. Mm -hmm. And what would happen if, for example, the, the thickness is increasing? I mean, did you study what is well happening? Like, worst case scenario, the behavior, or something weird or something? What happens is uh, the electric field you're using to control the current through the device can only penetrate so deeply into the device. And it depends upon the details of the material, but oftentimes the electric field penetration depth is on the order of a couple of nanometers, which means that as soon as your device gets thicker than a couple of nanometers, the electric field can't fully penetrate it. And as a result, you lose the ability to control the current through the device. So that's uh, the reason why it has to be very you know, flat and thin if you're uh, using a gate to control the current flow. Maybe I'll ask you again about maybe coming to the hard one when we studied like the Harvard, uh, Harvard for Newman structure. Um, how do you see the, the space and equipment and the material and achieving the intelligence and energy? Do you see other architecture to design the intelligence of the electric circuitry, the printed electric circuitry and the material? How do you see the changes happening in the low from hard material like what we see in microcontroller with this hard part to soft material? Yeah. Is this something should be considered in the way of the design here? Yeah, there, there are some, some new opportunities. So if we look at conventional digital electronics, it's referred to as a planar technology. All of the transistors and your integrated circuits and your computer and your iPhone and so on are in one layer, typically silicon, which means that if you want to pack more devices into your integrated circuit, you need to make the footprint, the lateral size, smaller. And that's, of course, been the whole business model of the microelectronics industry for six decades. Just make the transistor smaller and smaller laterally and then you can pack more and more in the same area. So now I can have an iPhone, which can outperform a computer from the 1980s, even though it's much smaller because we pack so many more transistors into that small area. Now that scheme works quite well. I mean, that's why microelectronics has continued to advance for six decades, but there is a limit. Once the size of the device gets down to atomic scale dimensions, you can't go any smaller. And we're approaching those length scales now. And as a result, further scaling laterally 
uh, has a finite window over which that will continue to work. On the other hand, if I'm doing printed electronics or flexible electronics, I now have the possibility of going out of plane into the third dimension. For example, if I'm printing the semiconductor layer, I could print a layer of semiconductors, I could have some devices on that layer, put down an insulating material, and then print another layer of semiconductors, and just keep building up out of plane. So now I can get an additional number of devices per unit area by making the circuit thicker. And that ability to go into the third dimension is facilitated by printing, also facilitated by flexible materials. So that, I think, is sort of fundamentally different. And if you think about the brain, gets you closer to the brain's form factor. The brain is not a hard, planar system. It is three-dimensional, it's soft, it's reconfigurable. So it stands to reason that uh, emulating that architecture is also useful if you want to go after neuromorphic computing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Maybe I want to talk again about quantum computing. You mentioned quantum computing, but it's also something you try to design on nanoscale. Can you tell what is actually quantum computing? Interesting. And how you do that in the nanoscale level here? Yeah, quantum computing is a completely another paradigm uh, for computing, another one that we're working on. In quantum computing, uh, what we're attempting to do uh, is now encode information not with binary system, a zero and a one, like we do in a digital computer, but a superposition of a zero and one. And this is something that, that quantum mechanics does quite well. Uh, quantum mechanics does this, though, uh, in circumstances that are not necessarily easy to harness for computing, like individual atoms, of course, are quantum systems. Uh, but challenging to, to address and harness the properties of individual atoms. And so there are other alternatives which are larger in size. Uh, the one that's most popular commercially is to use superconducting uh, quantum devices. These superconducting quantum devices allow you to have quantum behavior at much larger length scales. So the fabrication of such devices is is more realistic. Uh, that comes with some challenges. To get these devices to work, you need to go to very low temperatures. So you could argue the portability of that type of quantum computer is gonna be challenging. But to be honest with you, nowadays, a lot of computation is done in the cloud. You don't do all of your computation on your iPhone, rather you upload things to the cloud and you get information back. So I think you can still do quantum computing with low temperature where the cooling is done at some central server facility and you just access it remotely. But although that is, I think, a plausible path forward, the performance of even those superconducting quantum devices is still not yet high enough to compete with digital computing for most computational problems. And one of the issues is that for quantum computing to work, you need to be able to maintain the quantum state for a long period of time. The longer you can maintain that state, the more computation you can do on it. 
This is known as the coherence time. Now, the coherence times that are currently achieved are not long enough to compete with digital computing. But if you could increase that by orders of magnitude, then perhaps uh, you'd have a path forward to make quantum computers superior to digital computers in certain computational contexts. So that's sort of a long story, but where I'm going with this is that the decoherence of the superconducting quantum devices ultimately can be traced back to defects in the materials that are used to make them. These defects could be at the surfaces or the interfaces of the materials. Surfaces and interfaces tend to be at the nanometer scale. And therefore, methods for tailoring the surface chemistry of those surfaces and interfaces gives you a chance of minimizing decoherence or increasing coherence, thereby facilitating the advancement of quantum computing. So it's a bit of a long-winded explanation, but it comes down to can you control the surfaces and interfaces sufficiently well to improve coherence time and therefore improve computational performance? And when it comes to design of the flexible electronic devices here, do you disagree with the way, or maybe certain approaches, I'm curious from your experience, we want to push this research line forward, but do you think some approaches, no, I don't think this is the right way. Do you think about sometimes you disagree with certain ideas or approaches? Because you also have this experience in academia and also as an industry co-founding company. So what is missing? What is maybe wrong, do you think, to push this forward? Well, I mean, I think often what happens, uh, so let's, let's talk about the advent of new materials. So a new material emerges and there's uh, a thought of, of what it should be used for. So a new material emerges, uh, it looks promising for flexible electronics, so then we try to force it into the flexible electronics bucket. And what you find is that it may not be as good as you had hoped. And what people will often do is they'll just persist and they'll, they'll just you know, not acknowledge that it's perhaps not the ideal application for that material, but they'll keep going in that direction. Whereas if they were to just re-examine the material, look at what it does well, you'd realize that it's actually better in a different application. So I'll give you a specific example. I alluded to the material graphene before. This is a one atom fixed sheet of carbon. When it was first measured experimentally, there was great excitement about its charge carrier mobility, how quickly electrons move through graphene. And that led to a lot of optimism that it would be useful for electronics, because electronics is all about moving electrons quickly. However, upon further analysis, there are issues with graphene that make it suboptimal for electronics. Now, one is, is that it's, it's hard to modulate the current flow with an electric field. We talked about that before. That's sort of the basis of a transistor. You, you just can't switch the current level very high with graphene. And so from our point of view, that rendered it less interesting for electronics. However, what graphene has, which is 
pretty interesting to me is the fact that it's very stable chemically. You can expose this to almost any chemical environment. It maintains its properties. You can expose it to extreme temperatures, to oxidizing environments, and it remains intact. This then suggests that you should use graphene in a context where you exploit those favorable chemical properties. And one place where that's useful is in a battery. In the interior of a lithium-ion battery, you have a relatively caustic environment, but one where you need to maintain good current flow if you're going to charge and discharge that battery. So that led us not to explore graphene for electronics, but rather for battery technology. Now, the fact that graphene can be printed means that now I can use printing methods to manufacture batteries. So printed batteries I would view to be a better path forward for that material than printed electronic devices. And so that's where I think our lab sometimes goes against conventional wisdom because we let the properties of the material guide us to what the application should be rather than trying to force some new material into the application we're already working on. I'm just curious if there's something also maybe surprising or counterintuitive sometimes. I don't know if you your experience or this, yeah, I mean, your expertise here, but it's something counterintuitive or surprising. Well, I mean, it all depends what your intuition is <laughs> to say if it's intuitive or, or counterintuitive. Uh, but, but another example that I can give that I think we did something that was quite different than what everyone else was doing. I mentioned before about step one in making a good printable ink is having your constituent nanomaterials all being the same size and shape. The reason is that properties depend upon size and shape. And so if you don't control that, you're going to have poor reproducibility from run to run. And this was a very famous problem for carbon nanotubes. Carbon nanotubes, when you synthesize them, you lack perfect control over their atomic structure. Either the diameter is varying or the exact arrangement of the atoms along the axis of the cylindrical nanotube vary. And each of those nanotube structures gives you a different set of properties. And if you have a random distribution, about two-thirds are semiconducting, one-third are metallic. And if you're making a transistor, you need all of them to be semiconducting. And so there were groups around the world trying to figure out how to separate the metal from semiconducting carbon nanotubes. And a lot of efforts were utilizing methods from physics, like perhaps using electric fields or magnetic fields to do that separation. Our lab, on the other hand, when we saw a carbon nanotube, we saw a material that has had a size and shape that was very similar to biological macromolecules. Like the size of a DNA molecule and the size of a carbon nanotube are very similar. And therefore, we thought that if we want to separate carbon nanotubes, we shouldn't look to physics, we should look to biochemistry. Because biochemistry for years has been working on separating biological macromolecules. For example, DNA from RNA or DNA from polysaccharides. And so when we looked to the field of biochemistry, we found that there were separation methods that could be adapted to the carbon nanotube separation problem. Uh, one of them is called density gradient ultracentrifugation. It's a centrifugation-based method where you separate by buoyant density. And indeed, the carbon nanotubes of different diameters not only have different electronic properties, but different buoyant densities. And therefore, a method which separates by buoyant density 
allows you to separate by electronic properties. And so our lab went and did that. We, we went to our biochemistry colleagues, borrowed some time on their equipment, and showed that indeed this works. So I think that would be perhaps unexpected uh, for the field that was working on the problem, which was largely physicists, uh, to look to biochemistry for a solution. Good question. I want to ask you how you see your vision when it comes to soft electronic material here. What is the vision do you have? And also, I'm curious from the experience being industry, what is also missing when you're trying to see in the lab and going to co-founding company, we really did. What is the change in your perspective when you design, go to the lab and see? Is there something significantly different here in the way of the seeing the two world here? Yeah, well, if we're talking about you know, fundamental research versus commercialization, um, you know, our lab tries to do both. Uh, we often view the fundamental science to be the discovery and characterization of new materials, material that has never existed before. Uh, that is a, a fundamental science problem. Uh, and once you have achieved a new material, then you have to understand its structure property relationships in detail. That's often fundamental science. But as I alluded to before, once you've identified what the unique properties are of that material, we then let that guide us to what the application should be. That might be in batteries, it might be in solar cells, it might be in neuromorphic computing, it might be in quantum computing. Once we see a path where this new material has competitive advantage, then we would build prototypes, and now the work becomes increasingly applied. When you build a prototype, though, you then have to ask the question, does it beat the incumbent technology? If it doesn't, then there's no path forward commercially. But if it does, then perhaps there is a path forward commercially. But what you learn quickly when you try to commercialize something is performance is not enough. You also have to have a path to scalable manufacturing and low cost. It's often said that to really make inroads commercially, not only do you need to be 10 times better than the incumbent technology, but also 10 times cheaper. And that's going to require scalable pathways for producing the material for manufacturing and ultimately maintaining or preserving the performance in that scaled up process. That at some point goes beyond the realm of a university. You can only do so much scale up in a small university lab. And so ultimately that needs to go out uh, into a commercial endeavor, a startup company where you can perform the scaling that's required to bring something to market. Maybe that's a question for you. Uh, what makes you fulfilled? And also there's advice was given to maybe stick to your mind. Yeah, I think what makes me uh, most excited is, is you know, training students and seeing them be successful. So, you know, I'm an educator first and foremost. So my student success, uh, I'm very proud of and that certainly is what gives me the most fulfillment. In terms of research though, I think we're always trying to do something that's new, that's different, and ultimately can impact society. And the most direct path to impact in society is by taking an idea from a fundamental concept ultimately to a technology that impacts products in the marketplace. That's how most people interact 
with technology. I mean, I like writing journal papers, but let's be honest, not many members of the general public are reading journal papers, but they're probably going to interact with new technologies that are uh, used in devices that impact their everyday lives. So that I think is, that, 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 that from a research perspective is what I get the most fulfillment from. I really appreciate this point because you mentioned being different and I, I really like this word particularly, but being different, do you think it's easy when it comes to doing something new? I mean, in an academic setting, I'm just curious, being different, when you mean different? Yeah, so it's challenging. It's always challenging to come up with a truly novel idea and convincing someone to fund it. I mean, ultimately uh, we, we have to do research that's fundable and there are definitely trends and fashions. And if you follow the trends and fashions, that's often the easiest way to get something funded, but then you're doing what everyone else is doing and the likelihood of having a breakthrough is much lower in that case. So I think that's the, what we aspire to do and it's challenging to do is to do something that's very unique and yet uh, get sufficient support to take that, that concept, which, which could be viewed as high risk, uh, ultimately to a successful outcome. Thank you. I don't know if you have any final words like to say for those listening or yeah, any final words like to say. Well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. I hope this is uh, useful uh, for your listeners. Um, I hope uh, for aspiring students uh, out there that this type of research is of interest. And even if it isn't, uh, if they pursue uh, research in their careers, I do encourage them to always try to be as innovative and novel as possible. It will not necessarily be the easiest path, uh, but I think it will have the highest impact in the long run.